Chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, is to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is modern-day Izmir. Uh, Ephesus is still on the map in a lot of ways, but modern-day Izmir is on the map, and it was also a seaport in the Aegean Sea. It stood about 40 miles north of Ephesus, and late in the first century, it was a large, wealthy city with a population of about 100,000. The city of Smyrna was extremely loyal to Rome. Smyrna had collapsed economically on several occasions because of the invasions and earthquakes, but the people had rebuilt the city each time. In Smyrna, many residents worshipped a goddess named Sibyl, whom they regarded as the personification of the yearly rejuvenation of nature. So they, she is Mother Earth, the mother on the re, the nature coming back every single year. Her devotees claim that she, um, she arose from the dead every spring, and there was a large Jewish population that was hostile towards the church, making it difficult for Christians to survive economically in the city. Martyrdom for faith was very common in the city. Most likely, if they're worshiping Sybil, there's also a sexual practice worship going on in order to raise her into spring as a fertility goddess. Now, what's interesting is that this city had collapsed multiple times and been rebuilt. And what's interesting is that this church, Smyrna, was a poor city. Financially speaking, it was poor. And it had suffered the collapse of the city economically, but because they had not sold out to the city and its pagan practices, they did not reap the wealth of the rebuilt of the city. And so each time it collapsed, nothing changed for them. I mean, one of the benefits of being poor is that when everybody else is collapsing financially, you're like, I already adjusted my life to that. <laughs> That's not affecting me as much because I've already been living like that. So and you're like freaking out like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? It's like, I've been doing that for a long time. They just kind of stayed poor with each collapse and each rise up. And they, they weren't a part of the culture. They had not compromised their faith. And so they didn't experience the rebuild of the wealth. Chapter 2, verse 8 through 9 to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last, the one who has died but came to life. I know the distress that you're suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I also know the slander against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not, but the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of the things that you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so you may be tested, and you will experience suffering for ten days. Remain faithful even to the point of death. I will give you the crown of life, the, the crown that is life itself. The one who has ears had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will in no way be harmed by the second death. This is one of two churches where he has nothing to condemn them for. There's no rebuke. There's no condemnation. There's no get your act together. And here's what's very interesting and fascinating. The only two churches that don't get rebuked are the only two churches that are poor. We have a great blessing and a great luxury in America. We're wealthier than any other country in the world, truly. There, and, and by that I don't mean, what I mean is there are more people percentage-wise, that experience wealth and luxury compared to the other countries percentage-wise. I'm not saying we have the wealthiest people in the world in America. I'm saying overall we have the largest percentage of wealth 
and luxury and comfort and entertainment and most importantly, distractions. And you know what the number one killer of everything right now is? Distractions. And distractions are only possible with wealth. You talk to any psychologist today and they will tell you what's destroying marriages more than anything is distractions. The ability to have so many options to do so many things and not actually spend time together. What's, what's destroying kids? Distraction, distractions. Uh, the, the newest statistics that have just come out are suicide rates were declining significantly by 2018. By 2020 and 22, they have skyrocketed way beyond anything that they have ever been. And the Columbus Dispatch just recently and a bunch of other places have just recently released their findings. And you know what the two number one reasons for that is? Isolation during government shutdown and social media. And the Surgeon General just released a scathing rebuke of social media. And there's not one study that has it because we have so many distractions. It's destroying our kids academically. It's destroying them in their relationships and connections. It's destroying couples, distractions, and it's only possible with wealth. And it's very interesting that even when Christ came, it was not the wealthy who overwhelmingly responded to him and followed him. It was the poor and the out. And my students, every year they go to the Dominican Republic their senior year, and many of them come from very wealthy families. The tuition at my school is not cheap. And they always come back every time, and they're just blown away by these families living literally on dirt floors and four concrete walls and two chains of clothes their entire life practically. And they're blown away by how much joy and love, and they're like, I don't have anything like that. Where is this? Dominican Republic. They're blown away by that. But then they come back to America, and it's really hard to throw off the distractions. They want to, and they want to get rid of it, but, but then they come back to a community that does not support that because they didn't go there with them, and they didn't experience it. It's hard. I don't like being poor, and right now we're becoming a little less poor with my wife going back to work. And, and we were trying very hard to not spend any of that money to just kind of put it away for whatever. But one of the benefits is, is I have seen God do miraculous things, provide for me in amazing ways that is not mathematically possible. But yet he did it because he's the author of math and money and all that kind of stuff. And I have come to the point now where the very beginning of our marriage was like, why can't I have this? Why can't I? Why? This sucks, God. Like, our AC just broke, and our heater just broke at the same time. Like, how are we going to deal with this? Like, right? And all of a sudden, money just comes out of the middle of nowhere. And I mean literally the middle of nowhere sometimes, and things happen. Or sometimes we get a check in the mail randomly, like, okay, what's going to go wrong? And then something does go wrong, right? <laughs> and God has always been there for me faithfully. Even when I opened just said donations, God has used you tremendously to bless me. Not like I'm rolling in the cash from, but he has given us just enough to make sure that I, I have the privilege of, I, I've decided to make not working. I used to work during the summer to pay the bills, and I just realized that because of my weaknesses, intimate connections, I just need to take the summers off for the sake of my girls. And God has rewarded that with donations to help me keep going through the summer. And, in, in, um, and I've gotten to the point now where I don't want to be wealthy. 
I don't want the big house. I did. I used to. And don't get me wrong. I still kind of do because I'm human. <laughs> but but when it really comes down to like the dreaming and that kind of stuff, I can kill those dreams really quickly now. Because I also am in a school with lots of wealthy kids. And I've seen what their lives are like. And I've come to the realization that, and sometimes my girls are like, why can't we have money like this? And I just keep reminding them, remember Nellie Olson from Little House on the Prairie? <laughs> That's why we don't want money. And they're like, oh yeah, you're right. So, and there's truth to that. There's truth to that. And there is something to just saying like, and I'm not saying you should feel guilty for having wealth. It's all how you're using it. Are you holding on to your house and your cars and your stuff, or are you divesting it into other people's life? I, I knew a doctor guy who bought a really big house and a really big car, but it was always filled with kids from the neighborhood and always filled with missionaries who didn't have a place to stay for the couple months that they were here, and it was always filled, and it was never just his. And, and so what are you doing with it? Is it just yours or are you divesting of it? Either building and having people coming in or are you generously pouring out? And, and, and so, and I, I have to admit that even gaining a little extra money, we're putting away for nest egg and it's a little hard um, but to give it away now because I keep thinking, what's going to go wrong? What's going to go wrong? And so that's the disadvantage of being poor too is now that we're gaining a little bit extra money, it's more of like, okay, well, the big thing is coming, right? Um, but even now, just we've, we've talked and we've said, okay, who can we give this? And we've just decided to give big donations to people. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying there has been... I have moved from desiring more from the beginning of our marriage and having kids now to, I don't want that. Because I'm so afraid of what it would do to us as a family. I would like to say I could handle it, but you look around. And I can tell you that I wouldn't be able to because nobody really can. Nobody really can. Um, even my friends who do, they, they, work, they have people in their lives holding them accountable. What are you giving away? What are you giving away? And this interesting that this church is poor, and yet there's no rebuke. There's no rebuke. That doesn't mean poor people automatically love God and that kind of stuff. But those who have God and are poor, there is. They, they, that's all they have. That's all they have. Poor people can be bitter and angry and, and, and be spoiled too. But when you have the Spirit of God and you have nothing else, there's, there's something different to that combination. There's something different to that combination. The title that Christ uses himself is the first and last who died and came to life together. This communicates to them that Jesus has always been with the church of Smyrna and would continue to be with them in their suffering and sustaining them, that even though they might die of their starvation or poverty or persecution, Christ will be with them, and they will live again like Christ did. You notice each phrase is unique to them. I have always been with you, and I will be with you to the end in all of your suffering. And even when your suffering kills you, there's life. There's life. That's his encouragement to them. Like the church of Philadelphia, Jesus had no rebuke for them. They were the only two small churches. They did not have size or money to make them arrogant and self-sufficient. Rather, their poverty drew them to Jesus and made them depend on Him. They had nothing to brag. That's the problem. They had no trophies to brag over. They had no awards from work to brag over. They had no big houses or cars to invite people over and say, Look, 
They had, they had no size. They weren't some mega church to say, obviously, we're awesome. How could we be this big if God weren't with us? Well, there's, yeah, there's lots of ways you could be that big. They had nothing to brag about except their relationship with Christ. They had nothing to boast in. Better word than their relationship with Christ. Because of this, they were rich. They were rich in their relationship with God. They aren't going to have dysfunctional, disconnected kids or people in the church because they're too busy maintaining the wealth that they had and working the hours that they need to. That's the other problem in this church. And there's America. There's lots of people who are spending a lot of time working a lot of hours to pay for the things that they never had when they were a kid. But meanwhile, they're not with their families. That's what I see a lot of. Now, there's a lot of families who are working a lot of hours in order to pay for the things that they never had when they were kids. So, and they justify it, but my kids have more than me. Or they're so involved in so many programs and so many activities that their kid is over there and they're over here and their other kid's over there and their other kid's over there and they're, they're not having those conversations. They don't have time to be involved in people's lives. And that's what they're rich in. They're rich in those connections. They're rich in those relationships. If you're feeling insignificant and you're feeling like, man, I have so little and I've worked so hard for so long and still God just keeps me just at the very verge of, of being able to pay the bills, then what God is saying to you is you are blessed. You're blessed. You have a wealth that is far greater than what most people have and that's your absolute utter dependence upon God. And yes, there have been times that I haven't been dependent upon him. There have been times that I didn't pray like I should have. But it's a lot easier to come back to him when there is nothing else to distract me than before. Now, I'm not bragging that I'll go together because I just told you what my horrible weakness is with Ephesus. So so not saying I've got it all together and I'm this great. I'm just saying that's one area that has been good in my life, even though it hasn't been good. But you know what I mean. Despite this original they had in Christ... And he also is aware of how people are attacking them. He says the Jews, he says, but they're really the synagogue of Satan. Because the Jews are saying, you're not really saved because you weren't chosen by God and you're not circumcised. Or you're not being obedient to the Mosaic law and holding to it. For the Jew, they believe that being chosen by God and having the law automatically saved them. Circumcision was salvation. They did not believe that work saved you. No Jew thought that they were perfect. They believed that because I was chosen and you weren't, and God gave me the law and not you, I'm special, I'm saved, you're not. And they, the Judaizers, the people who said, forget Christianity, only Judaism, they actually went out of their way to start persecuting and killing Gentile Christians. Because you're not really saved. You didn't get circumcised. And then attacking the Jewish Christians who were aligning themselves with the Gentile Christians. And the harshest words that Paul had was for these people. Galatians, oh, you read it. It's harsh and kind of graphic in some places. Jesus is saying, they're the synagogue of Satan. Because salvation is by faith and grace. And not because you were chosen and other people weren't. And that is a lie from hell. And anyone who preaches that is Satan. And so he says, I know that they're against you. But do not be afraid. 
the things you're about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison and you may be tested and you'll experience suffering for 10 days. Now he's not saying literally you can check it off on your calendar when you're in prison. You're going to be freed in 10 days. 10 days is a number of completion that in a little time. And it will, 10 days is a little time. It could, be, it could be 10 months. It could be 10 years. But the point is in the grand scheme of eternal life, it's going to be a little while. And when it happens, it'll be complete and it will never happen again. Because you will be in the kingdom of God, which we're going to get to in the end of Revelation, chapter 21, 22. Some of you are going to go to prison. Some of you are going to suffer, but remain faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown that is life itself. I will give you a crown of eternal life, a wealth that is far greater. Peter says that it's your suffering, your trials that refines your character. It makes you realize who you really are and how much you need Christ and depend upon him. And that will become a crown and a treasure that is kept and guarded for you in heaven. that can never perish, never spoil and never fade. That's your treasure. Your treasure is the incredible wealth that you're going to have in heaven for a long, for all eternity. Not the big mansion you're going to have with football and jewels and bedrooms everywhere, but the incredible wealth of the true intimate relationship you have with God with no suffering for all eternity. If this is what you can relate to, and sometimes you just feel like you can't take it anymore, and that the suffering is too intense, and that being poor has been too long and too hard, this is God's message for you. This is your prayer. Your prayer is to still commit to be dependent upon God. Let me still remain dependent upon you. Let me see that the true wealth is my relationship with you. There is your true reward relationships. Remain faithful even to the point of death. I will give you the crown that is life itself. The one who has ear better hear the spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will conquers will in no way be harmed by this second death. What is the second death? Going to the lake of fire. Your first death is your physical death. But everybody is going to be resurrected. We'll read about that in chapter 20. But those who are not with God, they will go into the lake of fire, body and spirit. That is the second death. And so what he's saying is, they may kill you, but you will never experience the second death. You will never experience death forever. Yes, don't get me wrong. America declining and possible persecution coming and real true physical persecution coming for me and my daughters scares the crap out of me. But ultimately, I'm resting the fact of as much as that scares me, as much as I don't want that light, that is nothing compared to the grand scheme of eternity. And that's what I had to hold on. Because pain and suffering is very tangible and very real. But I have to hold on to the promises of God. That that is temporary for just a little bit. And then once I die, it's all complete and all that's left is eternal life. That's what's left. This is his encouragement to them. It's going to be hard. It's not easy. People hate you and they're attacking you. You're going to suffer, and I know that. But it is only going to be a little while. And Christ knows exactly what it's like to suffer. And he will go with you and hold your hand. And the same way that you've been holding his hand in your dependence upon him, he will hold your hand in comfort as an emphatic witness, someone who cares about you and that you're not alone. And then you'll have eternal life with him, a greater treasure reward than anything that you can ever have in this life. 
that will make houses and money and multiple hobbies and tennis courts pale in comparison. Yes, sometimes it's easy to watch the celebrities during government shutdown and say, wow, I wish I had a swimming pool and a tennis courtyard during government shutdown. But they're also miserable. There's not one celebrity. I can show you tons of celebrities and musicians, and you go to their interviews, they're miserable. They're not happy. 